Friends, when you love something, what do you do? How do you treat it? As my dad always says, when you have the best, you forget the rest. But isn't it true, though, friends, that you don't just forget about the rest, but you promote what is best. You talk about it. You can't stop talking about that which is best, the greatest, most supreme and high. If you are a foodie like me, it might be talking about a meal that you love. If you love sports, you might be talking about the game on today. None of those things are bad. But friends, what we want to talk about today is that none of those things are best. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. I understand, though, life can be difficult. We all go through trials and struggles and temptations. We all have lives to live throughout a week. But David, the author of Psalm 145 this morning, understands those real life struggles. The Israelites who put the Psalms together into one whole book understands how, how much of a struggle life can be. In fact, the Psalms are given to you today, Christian, to teach you how to walk by faith, trusting in the promises of God, even though life may not seem like it's redeemed at the moment. Amen? That's why we have the Psalms, though, because God is good and because God knows that we will struggle in this life. But it's to teach us faith in God in this life and what that looks like for us this morning. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Psalm chapter 145. If you don't have a Bible, if you're new to the Bible, we have black Bibles under the pew in front of you. And we're going to find that on page 524. Like I said, if you're a visitor this morning, we're happy to have you. The larger numbers are the chapter numbers. The smaller numbers are the verse numbers. And we're going to be in chapter number 145 on page 524 this morning. While you turn there, let me just give you an idea of where we are in the Psalms this morning. Okay? The Psalms are 150 chapters altogether. That's a lot of chapters. It's split up into five different sections or books. And where we are this morning is in book five or section five of the Psalms. But what's cool about the Psalms, friends, is that even though they're called the Psalms, they're called praises and songs toward God, most of the Psalms leading up to the last book of the Psalms, guess what? They're cries of lament. They're cries out to God. And what happens in the last two books? They are rejoices to our great God. Rejoices about his coming kingdom. His messianic kingdom. A kingdom that will last forever and that will save anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ alone. So that's where we are today. The Israelites were exiled and they're taken out of exile. They lose the temple, God's dwelling place with man. And guess what? They still have hope. Why? because they remember who their God is, friends. So look with me this morning 
chapter 145, and we're going to start in verses 1 through 9. And please keep your Bibles open this morning because we're going to walk through verse by verse so you can see it's not my words that matter, it's his word that matters. Verse 1, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another, shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Amen? Point number one this morning of two points. Make known, make known the almost unbelievable greatness of your God, church. Make known the almost unbelievable greatness of your God, church. Verses 1 through 9. Do you feel the bubbling up and the pouring over of the white, hot love of God from King David in this chapter? If not, you should, friends. Just look at the text. You can tell when you read this psalm that David has not just heard about God or some God, but David has feasted at the table of God's goodness and greatness. He has experienced God. He has understood the forgiveness of this great God, church. You can tell that this morning. Verse 1, he says what? Look at it. I will extol you. Who? My God and King. He's saying, you can count on it, church. He says, I will extol you. I will praise you. I will declare and speak of you, my God, my king, friends. He says, I will make you known forever and ever. God, Yahweh, the promise-keeping God, the God who keeps his promises. He says it, he will be faithful to complete it, church. He is the king, the ruler of all things. He doubles down in verse 2. Forever and ever? David, that's, that's a long time, isn't it? He says, no, friends, not just forever and ever, but every day, every single day, I will praise you, oh God. I will bless your name forever and ever. Kids, how often is he going to praise God? He says every single day. And then some. Sunrise to sunset. You make up, wake up, make your coffee, you bless him. You go to work, you bless him. You go to school, you bless him. You praise his awesome name, friends. How do we know this, though? How do we know that it's more to David than just knowing about God? But there's something more going on here, isn't there? It's a heart change in David. 
It's a stirring up. He has seen this. He knows him. Do you know your God, friends? Can you say that you love God in this kind of fashion? Despite circumstances, despite not having everything together, but when you look at God, you can't help but praise him every day. This is the vibe David is giving off. It's not simply, hey, friend, let me uh, tell you about my church. Let me tell you about God. You know, God is good all the time. God is good. No, he's saying he is great and greatly to be praised. He's not just good. He is great. He is capital G, capital R, capital E, capital A, capital T, great. Do you believe that? He says God is great. He is mighty. He is greatly to be praised. And how big is his greatness? It is unsearchable, incomprehensible. It is the stars in the sky tonight. When you look up, how many stars are there? Incomprehensible, unsearchable, sands in the sea, hairs on your head. It's, it's amazing. God is unsearchably great, friends. He's, he's seen it. He has tasted and seen the goodness of God, like we just sang about. Think of this today, friends. Think of Job. I think of Job when I think of God's greatness. In Job 38, Job starts questioning God because he thinks he knows what's right. <laughs> he thinks he knows better than God. And what does God say in Job 38? Let me tell you. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, Job, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Who laid the cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Surely you know, Job. This is the greatness of our God, friends. We can't contain the fame of our great God's name. A name is not just what you go by. And it's the same for God. A name is what you've done. It's your reputation. And David points us to that this morning. His greatness, look at verse 4, it floods the pages of history. David says, One generation shall commend your works to another. They shall declare your mighty acts. So God is not just great by name, but he is great by the works and the acts that he has done from generation to generation. Do you believe that, church? The generations don't just speak of mighty acts. David, we see in verse 3, could care less about his own name. Rather, they speak in positive fashion about the works of Almighty God in the pages of Scripture. Works that are wonderful. Works that are awe-inspiring. They make your jaw drop and your knees knock. You can't stop but be awe-inspired in light of the works of an amazing God, friends. Works like delivering his people from Egypt. Works like dividing the Red Sea. Works like creation and even works like the flood. It's a domino effect, he says. One generation after another shall, they will, not maybe, not if they feel like it, but they will commend 
the greatness, the praises, the works of Almighty God. They will declare it. They will make it known that God is great and he is greatly to be praised, church. When you truly sit with the greatness of God and meditate on it like David does, it becomes contagious, friends. We know what that looks like, don't we? It becomes contagious. You can't help but see and be in awe of and pour over and out the greatness of our great God. David says in verse 5, he hears the works throughout the generations, and what does he do? He meditates on them. There is no hesitation. He moves from meditation, stirred up, loving God, and he pours out to proclamation. He joins in with the generations, convinced of the truths that they have told him and the greatness of God that he's seen. God is not some stuffy story on a bookshelf. God is living and active. He is faithful. He is kind. He has created all things, you and me included, friends. He is a great God. Verse 7 says, They shall pour forth the fame of God's abundant goodness. They shall sing aloud of what? Of God's righteousness. It will go forth. It will not be stopped. People will taste and see that he is good. Whether we like it or not, God will be praised. They will pour forth like rushing rivers, uncontainable, it says. The fame, not of self, but of God and his abundant goodness. They will sing aloud of his righteousness. He is good. His works tell of his goodness. They prove his goodness and righteousness. But this word righteousness, it's, it's a word we use a lot in church. It's kind of a big word, if you ask me. But what does that look like? Well, the simplest form that I can put down on paper for you, in one sentence, the righteousness of God is God's rightness. The righteousness of God is God's rightness. What does that mean? It means that God is right, how often? 100% of the time. Do you believe that? In fact, to go against the rightness of God is what the Bible calls sin. God is the supreme standard of what is right and wrong. To go against God's rightness is therefore to be unright unrighteous. And how can we become right with God again? How can we become righteous again? By the work, by the death, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ alone, friends. It has nothing to do with what we can do. And this is also what makes God so great. He is gracious, friends. God sent Jesus to die the death our unrighteousness, our unrightness deserves so that you can be made right with a holy, holy, holy God. Notice what God's character is like. David moves from God's transcendent godness, his supremeness, and he moves to God's character, his nature, his heart in verses 8 through 9. Look with me. 
The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. This is your God, friends. Isn't it sweet that God tells us this morning, sinful man that I am, that this is who he is. At his core, at his very being, behind every action, intention, thought, disposition, mission, whatever, his bent, his desire is to bless and not to curse. He is not like us, is he? And praise God for that. He is tender. He is sympathetic. He has pity towards us. Care. He is great and greatly to be praised. If you don't know him like this, friends, I pray that you would today. Do not get your idea of God from other people. Don't get your idea of God from TV or YouTube or whatever. Get your idea of God from his word. From the pages of scripture, he tells you that he is not like us. Even if you've been wronged or hurt by the church, I want you to remember this is who God is. He is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger. He is not quick to anger like many of us can be. He is abounding in steadfast love. He is good to all. His mercy is over all that he has made. God is gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger. And he is great in faithful love. These are wonderful words that many of us find hope in. But we also need to understand and come to terms with that just because God is slow to anger does not mean that God does not have right anger towards sin, that which is unright. In Nahum, chapter 1, we see God's anger towards Nineveh. So consider this. Just listen with me. He says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is fierce in wrath. The Lord takes vengeance against his foes. He is furious with his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. You see his righteousness here? His perfect balance, friends? His path is the whirlwind and the storm. Clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the very seas and they dry up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Even the flower of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills even melt. The earth trembles at his very presence. The worlds and all who live in it. Who can withstand this God's indignation, he says. Who can withstand it? Who can endure his burning anger? His wrath is poured out, it says, like a fire. Even rocks are shattered before this great and terrifying God, friends. That's God's wrath. God's right, his rightness, shown in wrath towards that which is unright. And friends, we are all unright, unrighteous. 
without God's help. There is nothing we can do to be made right with this God. But he is slow to anger. He hasn't forgotten you. He is patient with you. That's why he's not back yet. It's because he is patient to offer you to come back to him and live as you were meant to live. Friends, enjoy his slowness to anger today. Don't take it for granted. He is patient, not wanting any of you to perish. But he invites you to come to him today. So this week, I want to dare you. I want to dare you to meditate on the greatness of your God. I want you to open your Bible to Psalm 145, look at verses 1 through 9, and just sit with it and see the greatness of your God, church. Which leads us to point number two. Point number one was make known how almost unbelievable, right, the greatness of your God is. Point number two is this. Make known, declare, make known the almost unbelievable greatness of his kingdom. We're going to see that in verses 10 through 21. Would you look at that with me? He says, All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord. All your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. To make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words. He is kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling. And raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, and kind in all his works. He is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praises of the Lord, and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Friends, in this section you can see God, or David rather, moves from speaking of God's transcendence, his greatness, to talking about how great God's kingdom is in reality. Verse 10 All your works shall give thanks to you. Everything. Everyone will, if not now, one day bow their knee and give thanks to God for his mercy in this life. When they meet him, they will give thanks. But what does he say? But your saints, they will bless you. Are you blessing him, church? Are you talking about him? Are you making it known, the greatness of your God and the greatness of his kingdom? What's so great about God's kingdom? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 11. They will speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. What kind of power, though? What kind of power does God's kingdom wield? Well, 
It's the kind of power that rose Jesus Christ from the death, from the dead, bodily, physically. When's the last time you've seen that happen, friends? The kind of power that can recreate you and me to the image of a holy God. The kind of power that brings victory over sin and sickness and death. The kind of power that disarms, as Colossians says, the rulers and authorities and does what with them? Doesn't just drop their weapons, it puts them to open shame. Love that verse. This is the kind of power his kingdom deals with, friends. The gates of hell will not overcome it. But do you believe that? Make it known then. Verse 12 says, Make known to the children of man his mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of his kingdom. Verse 13 says, His kingdom is what? An everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures through all generations. This kingdom, this power, this rule cannot, will not be stopped. It will not fade. It is not like that Christmas present you open and you're bored with the next minute or next day or week if you're lucky. Friends, the kingdom of God is better than you can expect it to be. It's better. The kind of promises God makes are not the promises that under-deliver. God's promises are so much better than you probably and I probably even expect. It can even comprehend, friends. Think about David, for example. What was the promise he received from God in 2 Samuel 7? The promise of a king on a throne of his line that will not end? Do you think David knew or could fathom that the fully human, fully God-like Son of God, Jesus Christ, would be the one who reigned on that throne? Do you think Jesus, I mean, David could have comprehended that? Do you see how good the promises of God are, friends? And look at the way David still sung of God's greatness. He didn't even see that, but in faith he believed that. Just like in faith, we believe that God is better than fill in the blank. He is greater than. The kingdom of God is not like those presents that fade. The kingdom of God never needs remodeling. Verse 13 says, the Lord is faithful in all his ways. He is kind in all his works. Isn't this a helpful summary of what we're about to read? I'm going to show you. Look with me in these next eight verses. Stay in the text with me. Because there is nothing my words can do to make these words any better. So look at the text with me. What does God's kingdom look like? What does his reign look like if we trust in him? It says, the Lord upholds. Not hurts, not indifferent to, he upholds all who are falling. Have you stumbled, church? Have you struggled? Are you ashamed? Do you think God is done with you? Do you? This king, he stands willing and able not to squash you, but to help you to pick up all who are falling. Which is what he says here in verse 14. He raises up all who are bowed down. He's not the kind of king who keeps his foot on your back when you're bent over. 
No, he's the kind of king who lifts you up and makes you his sons and daughters through Jesus Christ our Lord. He promises, he says he will uphold you if you turn to him. This is what repentance looks like, to bow down, to admit, to agree with God that we are not right and he alone is right, to trust in Jesus. His kingdom is great. And when we turn in him in such a way, we receive his help. So if you're struggling this week, if you're struggling right now with so many things that we could list, right? But you know what they are. If you're struggling, have you gone to this king who has this kind of power, friends? If not, why not? Well, I'm sure like me, it's because sometimes we forget Sometimes we struggle to believe it. But this is why we have the church. This is why he says, don't neglect the gathering of the saints. This is why we talk about it. This is why we declare it. Because sometimes our neighbor is forgetting it. Sometimes I'm forgetting it. So talk about the greatness of God, church. Jesus says, blessed are you. Blessed are the meek the humble, the poor in spirit, those who are sick that know and admit they need a savior, those who are bowed down, like Psalm 145 says. Blessed are you, why? How do you get into God's kingdom? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Have you humbled your heart before God? Have you done so recently? Have you admitted, I can't do this on my own? We can't, friends. But it's that easy to get into the kingdom by trusting in Jesus, not by anything we do. Verse 15, David says, all eyes look to you. We all need him. This is king and kingdom. All eyes look to him. And what's his response? Well, what would your response be if you were king? When your enemies are looking to you for help. What does he do? He gives food to them at the right time, at the proper time, in due season. Should you worry about it? What does Jesus say? He is the king, isn't he? He says, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? What? He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they, church? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, Jesus says, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, church? Oh, you of little faith, Jesus said. Oh, me of little faith. Therefore, he says, though, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And don't you know, your heavenly Father knows all the needs you have. But, he says, seek first the kingdom of God. And what? His righteousness. His rightness. 
And all these things will be added to you, he says. Friends, God is not stingy. God doesn't close his hands when you need help. Verse 16, David says, you open your hands. If he, does, he doesn't have to, but he chooses to out of his graciousness, out of his mercy, out of his love for you, church. He covers the heavens with clouds, the psalm says. He prepares the rain for the earth. He makes the grass grow on the rolling hills. He gives the beasts their food, the young ravens that cry. And what? It pleases him, the psalmist says. It delights him to provide for you, especially Christian, for his delight is in not horses and the strength of men, but his delight is in those who put their trust in him and those who fear him. Do you believe that, church? This is a relentless love. It is a steadfast love. But this kingdom isn't just about water and food. Remember the woman at the well. God cares for your needs, but he knows your ultimate need. And that's to be made right with God, to be brought back into his kingdom and dwell with him forever and ever. It's about being satisfied by God, forgiven by God, accepted by God, remade by God to the praises of his glorious name. And in verse 17, we see this word righteousness come up again. This kingly rule. It's not like the rulers we know of today. It's not like the rulers we know of in the pages of history. It's not like the rule of our family or any other leaders that is not always right all the time. The king, this ruler, God, he is right. And he is righteous. How often, he says? In all his ways. Every single act, every single thought, every moment he makes is right. He is the standard of that which is right, church. And friends, I know, I get it. We like to make sense of things, don't we? We want answers. Right now. Every moment. We want, we want to figure it out. We want to know why things aren't right, <laughs> don't we? But friends, this is nothing new. But we need to trust who God says he is, but not just who he says he is. God's words aren't cheap. He has shown us who he is. And think about Joseph. We talked about it last week, the big reveal, right? We've been going through Genesis as a church. And Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, telling him, hey, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into slavery. Imagine how that should have gone in my head. <laughs> Probably wouldn't be the same unless God were working in Joseph, unless God's working in us. But what did he do? I just want to read this for you because I was struck by this when we had life group this week. Talk about God's rightness. Joseph got it. He says, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. What? He sold him to slavery. Joseph's in second command in Egypt. 
He should be terrified, right? They should be freaking out. But why? Why does he calm them down? He says, for God, he says, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which we will neither plow or harvest. God sent me before you to preserve a remnant on the earth. A remnant in which Jesus Christ would come from. A remnant in which we are all saved, friends. That is the righteous act of God. His sovereignty on full display. Something we couldn't even comprehend isn't it? And look at verse 18. He says, this comes to who? All who call on him. He is near. He is not far off. He stands at the door and knocks. He is near the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. He is near you. He knows you. He has shown himself to love you beyond anyone or anything you could ever imagine. This great God is near. If we call out to him. Just like uh, Jesus says, though, also in, in John 4, rather, it's about being true worshipers, humble worshipers who worship the Father in spirit And, there's our word again, truth. For these are the sorts of people the Father is seeking, Jesus tells you. Actively seeking the Father, God of the universe. Actively seeking you. He preserves all who love him. And the way to the Father is through the truth. The way, the truth, and the life through Jesus Christ. Friends, we should praise God that he has made a way where there was no way that we could be made right with this great God and King. He stands at the door and knocks. The invitation is accepted when you turn from your sins and your idea of rightness. And then this kingdom is the highway to heaven. May our mouths, as David says in verse 21, speak the praises of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy and unique name forever and ever. Remember, he's slow to anger, but verse 20, he will destroy the wicked. So which kingdom are you in? You know, weeks ago when I was studying this text, church, I'll have to be honest, I was not buying in like I knew my heart should. But now, I have been so desperate in my finite capabilities to express to you the greatness of God. I don't know how else to do it, because I can't on my own. But church, he is great. So how do we get there? How do we move? How did I move from being like, I don't really want to preach this passage because I'm struggling to see the greatness of God. I did exactly what David did. What David tells us to do, church. What does he say in verse 4? Look at it. The generations proclaim. And what does he do? 
I can't hear you. What? He meditates. He will meditate on it. What is meditation? It's not sitting Indian style humming or anything like that. All right? Meditation is simply, and the Greek and the Hebrew give this idea, the sense. Meditation is speaking it to yourself quietly, reminding yourself. Or you could say preaching to your heart, preaching to yourself. This text or what you've heard about God. Something that helped me change was listening to stories of God's greatness. We had someone uh, I, I talked to a few weeks ago, and he was telling me about how he got out of jail and how he found Jesus. But it wasn't until his pastor confronted him about living one foot in, one foot out. And he realized, like, how did this guy know everything about me? H- how could he do that? And the guy said that he, he came to Christ that day, and he's been going to church ever since. He's been following Jesus. And he said, I just want to tell everyone about what God was gracious to do for me. And, and if you know the intricacies of the story, it's just amazing, guys. I, I, couldn't like, I couldn't look at this text the same anymore when you actually see the works that God has done. So that's why I want to dare you this week to open your mouths, whether you're not feeling it, and say, I'm not feeling it. Help me. Help me see the greatness of God. And friends who do see it, who know it, open your mouths and make known what God has done. Meditate, church. Don't be okay with disbelief. Because God is a God who freely gives faith to all who ask. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Your mercies, God, they cover all of your works. You're faithful in your promises, and you're just in all you're doing. God, be merciful to us today. Govern our ways because we are weak. Strengthen us. We are frail. Refresh us because we are famished. And plentifully reveal your greatness to us so that we can make it known. In Christ's precious name we pray, amen.